Welcome to One Life Online. The podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35, titled, Forgiven People, Forgive, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. The title of my sermon is right there. Forgiven people forgive. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever been offended or hurt by someone? Right? How many of you have ever offended or hurt someone? Then this message is for you. For you who has lifted up their hand in any one of those instances, what do you do as a Christian when you have um, when you have hurt or offended somebody, or someone has hurt or offended you? The text we are looking at today, Matthew 18, from verse 15 and verse 20, especially, is the classic text on church discipline. That, alongside First Corinthians chapter 5. What should happen in a church like this when one of us sins and refuses to repent of their sin? But it's also a text on what should happen when we hurt or offend each other. How do we know it pertains to the church? Because we find those words that were read there, this person offends you or sins against you, tell it to the, to the church what we are told about this person. Church discipline is a way to restore somebody who has continued in their sin and has refused to turn away. The end goal is reconciliation or resolution or restoration or repentance for someone who has continued in a sin which they have refused to turn away from. According to Jesus, in these verses, it is for the health and the purity and the wellness of a church. His church, by the way, which he cares about, a lot which he paid for by his own shed blood. His point is not perfection, but while aiming at that, holiness. We keep each other accountable in fellowship. We keep each other answerable. Accountability is important anywhere. As a church, we have all manner of accountability mechanisms. We have elders, we have a board. Why do we have all of these things? We have policies and procedures. We have a way of doing things. We have auditors. Right now, I'm going through the audit process before we come and talk to you about it in the AGM. Why? Because it is important, accountability. It is something that people run away from a lot, and they don't want to be answerable to anyone. I am the captain of my own destiny. I do things the way I want. Don't ask me any questions. It's not a good attitude. Church discipline. When a church takes this matter seriously, the church prospers all round. When we seek reconciliation and restoration with one another. Do you remember when we went through Matthew chapter 5? In verse 23 and verse 24, Jesus said words that go along the ones which have been read to us today. Basically, Jesus said, if your brother or sister in Christ has an issue against you, what should you do? You should go and tell them. You should go and seek reconciliation. Now we see, if you have an issue against someone, what do you do? You wait for them to come to you. No, you still go. And you'll be reconciled to that person. If the person has an issue, you go. If you have an issue with the person, you go. The onus is on you. And then he gives us some steps to take. He tells us in verse 15, 
if your brother or sister in Christ sins against you, stage number one, what should you do? You should speak to the person privately. Just you and the person alone. Let the person explain the matter to you. Maybe the person hurt you unknowingly, not deliberately. Maybe the person even doesn't know. They have continued on in their life, and you are hurt, and you are offended, and you are in pain. Uh, the person doesn't know. Your life stopped, but their life kept on moving. Go to the person privately. If he hears you, you have gained that person. And that is the goal, isn't it? To gain the person. It is not to win the dispute. It is not to prove that I was right and you are wrong. It is to gain the person, to win someone over. And then the matter is settled there. Nobody has to know about it. But there's another stage, stage two, verse 16. The person may refuse to listen to you. The person may reject the fault. The person may deny that they hurt you or offended you or injured you. They may disagree with what they said or what they did to you. The person may feel, I was right. You are the one who is wrong. Also, you could be wrong. You may not be seeing the whole picture. So Jesus tells us, in verse 16, take a few more people with you. And he says one or two, two or three. This doesn't mean a fixed number. You have to count. It have to be exactly one or two. But go with respectable, mature, honorable believers to act as witnesses. And this idea of witnesses, he, Jesus didn't get it from nowhere. He got it from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15 where two or three witnesses are to establish a matter. So the witnesses are there to listen. They're listening to both parties objectively. In the event the person does not listen, having other, other believers, other Christians present, will demonstrate to you that you did everything that you could. At the end of it, you will say, I did everything I could. I came to you privately. I came to you with a few people. You refused. I did everything that I could in love. Verse 17. There's a word used there in verse 17, the word neglect. It is clear to all that the person is wrong and the person has decided to be stubborn or for some unchristian reason, the person does not want to resolve the issue. Maybe the person may even refuse to talk to the witnesses. I'm not going to talk to those people. Maybe the person closes the door on them speaking to him. And people can do that. They can avoid receiving the phone call or the invitation. People who are in law would say, I'm going to serve someone with some kind of papers. And the person may hide so that they are not served with the papers personally. The person may close off the door and refuse to, to listen. Perhaps the person denies the obvious during the talk. I mean, it is clear to all that they are wrong, but they deny it. Or they even attempt to justify or to excuse the sin, or even worse, they decide to continue in the sin, in the issue. Even when the issue is clear to all of these witnesses, having convinced the person by the Bible that they are wrong. That's the word neglect. It is something deliberate. The person is doing it deliberately. Hence, stage number three in verse 17. Tell it to the church. Maybe to preserve his testimony or for fear of public exposure, or maybe a concern for their, for their own shame among many other people, the person may see the sense, hey, this issue is going to go to the church. Maybe I'm not thinking about it with sober judgment. Maybe. The church here means just that, you, the church, the gathered believers, the congregation of Christians, the assembly, the called out ones, called out from the world and being separated for Christ. Now, the two or three witnesses that were taken earlier, ideally those should be elders. 
or some people in some kind of positions of leadership in the church. Such that when we come to this stage, stage number three, the church is really being informed by its leaders. Hey, this is what has happened. This is where we are with this issue, and so on and so forth. This is, after all, the idea that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there is an issue of someone who was extremely immoral, and Paul says this person should be cast out of the church so that the church can be pure. But Paul knew about it first, and then he appealed to the, to the church. So at this stage, stage number three, the whole church is invited to pursue reconciliation with that person. So not only you re trying to reconcile with the person, now two or three more people, now stage number three, the whole church, hey, come together and look at this issue as a church. So, question. What happens if all of these stages of reconciliation fail? Amanda seems to have an answer. She's lifted up her hand. Then there is stage number four. This is the hardest, the saddest, and the most unfortunate of all. And we should never, ever, ever reach here. We should never. We are told if the person neglects to hear the church, let the person be as a heathen person or a tax collector. Your version may even say a publican. So in this stage, the person is obstinate, the person is stubborn, the person is rebellious, the person has rejected the wisdom of the bride of Jesus. And of course, by this stage, their sin is public. We are then to treat them as an unbeliever. Not for punishment, but for the purity of the church. The word used there is heathen, as a heathen person, as a tax collector. This is synonymous with the people who were the most despised in society at that time, especially if the person was a Jew taxing his fellow Jews. The person would be considered very, very vile, very wicked, a heathen. <laughs> There's a football team in Uganda called the Heathens, right? Should change their names to something else. At this stage, we are to start evangelizing and praying for the person's salvation. We are to plead with God to save the person. Remember, why is this all happening? For the purity of the church. But you can no longer have fellowship with the person. He's out of communion with Christ by his own choice. And out of communion with God's saved, set-apart people. The person even at this stage is denied the Lord's Supper, communion. He's out of communion, she's out of communion in line with their behavior until they repent. Did you notice those drastic measures that are written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 and verse 5? Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together, church, gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, do this, deliver that person to Satan. What is the interest of Jesus, of Paul, of the Bible? That their pride would be destroyed, but that their spirit may be saved. That is the point. The spirit may be saved. The person may be saved. Should we ever come to this point, brothers and sisters? No, we should never. We should never. If only we followed the words of Jesus, so much conflict and consternation and chaos, so many divisions and disagreement and disunity would be dealt with. If only we followed the words of Jesus. But you can bear me witness, without repentance, without the person changing their mind and seeing that I actually hurt so-and-so, I've actually offended these people, I was wrong, I have been living in sin, this is clearly wrong. Unless there is full repentance, there can be no reconciliation. It's not possible. Even in a secular setting, never mind a sacred setting, it's not possible. So, is any of this easy? No. No pastor, no elder, no church member wants to do church discipline. Because you know the condition of your own heart. You know you're also a sinner. I know I'm also a sinner. But for the purity of the church, if God has allowed that the sin is public, 
then it has to be handled in that kind of a way. Is any of this easy? The answer is no. And that's the very reason for verse 18. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want you to notice three things from this verse. Notice, first of all, the, the verily at the beginning of 18, the truly, your version may say, assuredly, your version may say. This is Jesus' word of attention and authority. We've seen it so many times. Truly, truly, I say to you. Notice also that the you there in verse 18 is plural. Whatever you shall bind. You, it's not singular, it's plural. He's addressing a group of people, the church. And in connection to that, whatever the church prayerfully and wisely agrees to, which can either be restoration or exclusion, that will be confirmed by God in heaven. Jesus will approve what his church agreed in terms of dealing with an unrepentant person. The person may repent, may turn away after stage three, and you restore them to the fellowship gladly. That's, that's the aim, that's the joy, that's the hope. And the person may reject the matter altogether, and the person is to be excluded. Whatever the case, you've prayerfully done that as a church, and wisely thought about it, Jesus will ratify it. Jesus will approve it. Verse 19 and verse 20. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, then I am there in the midst of them. How do we understand those verses? In one of two ways. Maybe you would say in two of two ways. How do we understand those verses? As connected to the verses before, that is the first option, to mean when gathered to take such hard actions as I've talked about just now, even if there are a few of you present for the purity of the church, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You are doing what is right and your father will hear you and your father will answer you in a special way as you seek for the unity and the holiness of the church. It's the promise of Jesus. That's one way you can understand it. Second way, you can disconnect it from verse 18, 17, 16, and 15. You can disconnect it to mean wherever even the fewest number of believers, two or three, gather for the name of Jesus, he is personally present in a special way. Christ himself is there when you are gathered in Jesus' name. And this is what is hard often, isn't it? When few people gather for worship, maybe you are two of you, you are expecting 24 prayer, or maybe there are three of you and you are expecting 54 worship and so on and so forth. People encourage one another by, where two or three are gathered in my name, then there I am in the midst of them. And they are right to encourage themselves like that because the Bible says it, Jesus says it, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am right there in the midst of them. And that's the attitude we should have every time we come for worship on Sunday and we gather together for worship. We don't gather every day. We gather on the Lord's Day only, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, which some call Sunday. When we gather like that, Christ is present. Christ is present here today in our midst. You know that. You can feel it in your spirit. You know it in your heart. He promises it in his word. He is right here in our midst. We are gathered in his name. And you can say that's the positive side of it. This would also mean that when we deliberately neglect to gather together for worship, we miss the chance to meet Christ himself. Because that's what he said. When you gather together, Christ is there. When we fail to gather together and we are comfortable staying away from the church, from our brothers and sisters in Christ, we miss the chance to experience Christ Jesus himself. How do we experience him when we gather? In the word, 
in the music, in the fellowship, in the giving, in the relationships, in the life. We experience him even in the ordinances, which are just two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We know the Lord is present at that time. So Peter, like a good disciple, listens. It's always Peter speaking. I don't, other disciples never spoke. But Peter listens. Then now Peter answers in verse 21 and asks Jesus a question. The question is related to stage one, two, three, four, which, Jesus, which Peter has been listening to. Peter asks, hey Jesus, how often shall my brother offend me and I forgive him? Hey, right there we find another stage, by the way. That is stage number zero. Stage zero. Which is what in verse 21? Forgive. Even before it comes to stage one where you're going to talk to the person personally, if you can just but forgive. This is the ideal response. But this is often difficult, isn't it? And maybe you may think of the words in verse 21, whoever sins against me, not merely hurts me, but sins against me in their words or in their actions. Think about all manner of sins. The person steals, and I really trusted the person, but the person is still some kind of a believer. The person lies, and this is one of those big lies. The person commits adultery. There is extortion. There is corruption. There is all manner of sins committed. The person verbally abuses, physically abuses. The person sins against you. We are not going to water down the word sin. You know, however cautious or discreet we live our lives, we will always be hurt. And we will always hurt other people. It's unfortunate, but it's the unfortunate reality. However cautious or discreet we are, we live in a sinful world. We shall be treated badly. What we must do is decide how to respond, how to react, how to conduct ourselves when that time comes. So question. Question. If I'm, staying, if I'm saying stage zero is forgive, how do you know when you have truly forgiven someone? How do you know in your heart and in your mind, I have forgiven this person of the thing they did and they really hurt me? It could be a parent when you are a child. It could be a spouse. It could be a boss. It could be a business partner. It could be a friend. It could be a church member. It could be anybody. How do I know? How do you know you have forgiven someone? It's just saying the words, I forgive you sufficient. But the pain is before you. The pain is always there. It's in your memory. It's in your heart. The trauma is there. You bear some kind of scars in your heart because of what the person did. Before I answer that, let us look at Peter's question in verse 21. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Where does, Jesus, where does Peter get this? I believe he got this in what we looked at last Sunday from Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. Where Jesus said, if your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn against to you and says, I repent, please forgive me. They sin against you seven times in a day. They come to you seven times and they say, each time they say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Seven times, Jesus says, forgive the person. So now Peter wonders, is this then a threshold? Is this a definite number? Seven. You know, seven times in a day. Jesus says to him in verse 22, uh, no, I don't mean until seven times. But Jesus says, until 70 times seven. Your version may even say 77 times. Right? Now, this is not a fixed number. <laughs> it is not to say you count. I've forgiven you first time. Five times now. 50 times. 120 times. I have forgiven you. I've been counting. 220. 310. 390. 
450, 479, 480. So you're counting it down until you reach the 490th time and you say you are out, you are done. Now I can retaliate. That's not the point that Jesus is making. It's not a definite number, it's an indefinite number. Jesus says, just forgive, and we shall see the basis why he says that. Don't number down the times. Now, how important is this issue of forgiveness? So important, Jesus ties it to the kingdom. Imagine that. Jesus ties it to the kingdom in verse 23. When he speaks about this parable, Jesus says, Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened? And then he gives the parable. So he likens the kingdom to two servants who are the master. The master calls them and says, Give an account of what you did. Pay back my money. Now, there was one particular servant. This particular servant owed his master 10,000 talents. I read from the NIV, the latest NIV, it says 10,000 bags of gold. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. You know how much one talent was worth? 20 years of labor. The person who is earning a minimum wage, 20 years of labor is one talent. This slave owned his, owed his master 10,000 talents. People have done the math, what that would amount today, and I sat down myself and I did the math. Took me some time and I debated the math and all that, but it amounts to somewhere in the region of 20 trillion Uganda shillings. That's the amount we are talking about here. If we are, if we are generous enough, how much is the minimum wage of a day laborer? Say 20,000 Uganda shillings, isn't it? We are being generous, maybe lower than that. If this person act, worked for 100 days, day in, sorry, 100 years, day in, day out for 100 years, without resting, and they are paid 20,000 shillings a day, do you know how much they will have after 100 years? 730 million Uganda shillings. That's the figure. This servant owed his master 10,000 bags of gold. He would need to go and get 27 more people so that there are 28 of them, and then they can work for 100 years, day in, day out, to be able to repay this debt. 28 people earning 20,000 shillings a day, working for 100 years to repay the master's debt. Possible or impossible? Impossible. You may even say unpayable. It is easier to repay Uganda's debt. How much is Uganda's debt? 80 billion. How much of that is external? 48 billion. How much is internal? 32 billion. What's the population of Uganda? 45 to 50 million. If everyone pays somewhere between 1.5 to 2 million Uganda shillings, We've cleared our debt. We are debt-free. Praise the Lord. It's easier to repay Uganda's debt than this man paying his debt. The bottom line is, it was a huge amount, an impossible debt to repay. That's what I'm saying. And so the master of this servant slave says, your wife, your children, let them be sold to slavery forever. All of your property is going to be taken for the debt to be recovered. Even that wouldn't be enough. So the servant prostrated himself and said, have mercy on me. I'm going to pay you all of this money. And the Lord of that servant remarkably is moved with compassion. Did you notice the master did not ask, how are you going to pay it? Instead, he is moved with compassion. And the emotions that the master has leads him to act. This, brothers and sisters, this is what we call what? Five words. 
let us, mercy. Not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. That is what Jesus gives us when he forgives us our sin. We don't deserve it. We have an impossible debt of sin that needs to be repaid somehow. Do we have 10,000 bags of gold? Even if we, are, we worked all our life, it wouldn't be sufficient. So we praise the Lord because he has forgiven our unpayable sin. Now, look at this servant in verse 28. He goes out, he finds his fellow slave. <laughs> his fellow slave owned him, owed him, not owed, owned, owed him. We are told a hundred Roman denarii. Remember when we've used, looked at this currency issue, a denarius was the minimum wage of a day worker. The plural of that is denarii, which you would earn when you have worked for two days. That was the Roman currency. The Greek version of that was called the drachma. We looked at it last Sunday. So one drachma was equal to one denarius. This fellow slave owed this other slave 100 of this denarii. Approximately a million Uganda shillings. Comfortably repaid in three months. But he holds him by the lapels. The version that Ivan read said he began to choke him and demands repayment. Why does he demand repayment? Maybe because he's under pressure, some family pressure, or some pressure to repay the other debt. No, the other debt is forgiven. He has no family pressure. An impossible debt is forgiven, but he holds this man by the lapels. Also, also, let's cut him some slack and be kind to him and say, uh, maybe the person, this other fellow servant, owed him this money, but was running away from him, was hiding from him. Maybe he had refused to pay in some way. But then we read in the next verse, verse 30, that the fellow slave begs him for forgiveness using the very same words that the slave used before the master. Have patience with me, and I'm going to pay you all of it. But he would not, verse 30. But he threw him in prison till he should pay the debt. This is serious, serious lack of compassion, isn't it? It is the chronic disease of forgetfulness of sin. It is a chronic disease of mercy shown and love extended. We think this is horrible. We think, what a bad and grateful, wicked person. How could you do this? What is wrong with you? We want to get hold of this person ourselves and hold the person by our lapels and choke him ourselves because of what he did. Until we realize that this slave it's you and me. That's the point Jesus is making. It is you and it is me. Do you know an account in 2 Samuel when Nathan came to see David? 2 Samuel chapter 12. And Nathan came to David with a story. There was this one person who had a lot of things and a lot of flocks and herds and he was a rich man. Then there was also this other man who had only one, one lamb. And he really loved this lamb. And oh, the entire family loved it. It was the only thing that they had. So some people came to visit this rich man. And what the rich man did, he went and took the one lamb of the poor person, slaughtered it, and yet he had his own uncountable number of flocks and herds. And Nathan, the prophet, is telling this to David, the king. How does David respond? David is angry. He's upset. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. The king has delivered a verdict. And that person shall restore that lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing, and because he had no what? 
Pity, same word, compassion. Then Nathan turns to David and tells David, you are the man. You are the man. You are the man. The man here is me and you. At those times, when we have refused to forgive someone, and yet God has forgiven us a debt we could never repay, the debt of our sin. So, the fellow servants were watching. They went and I told the master, the person who you forgive, this is what they have done. So the king calls the man and says, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you asked me, you begged me, should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant and forgiven him? Verse 33. In the case of this man, he said nothing. He was hard-hearted and he was stiff-necked. At least David, David, when he was told by Nathan, you are the man. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, David immediately said, listen, no excuse. The dog, ate, it was the dog. The dog ate my homework. It was my brother. It was my sister. It was my boss. It was so and so. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Not even Uriah, not Bathsheba. I have sinned against the Lord. Because all sin is ultimately against God. And so the king, in our text, delivers justice. What had he initially delivered? Mercy. He had extended his mercy. Now the king delivers justice, prison. When we go to heaven one day, we will have entered there by the mercy of God. The person who goes to hell will have gone there by the justice of God. No one receives injustice. One person receives mercy in heaven. The other person receives justice in hell. There is no non-justice. There is no injustice with God. So the king delivers justice. And he delivers the person to the tormentors. Interesting use of the word tormentors. That's verse 34. Or torturers, your version may say. Notice, not executioner but torture us. And then Jesus ends the parable by saying in verse 35, so likewise, in the same way, shall my heavenly Father do to you if you from your hearts do not forgive everyone, his brother, their trespasses. Listen to those words again. So likewise will my heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister when they sin against you. Husband, so will your heavenly Father do to you if you from your heart do not forgive your wife, their trespass. Sister, so will your heavenly Father do to you if you from your heart do not forgive your brother their trespass. Why should God forgive my impossible debt of sin if I cannot forgive another one their comparatively smaller sin? Why? Now if you compare other people's forgiveness against you, offenses against you, sorry, they are minor compared to your sin and rebellion and alienation from God. So notice four things. Notice four things. The ground for forgiving is, member, is remembering I was forgiven the impossible. That's the ground for forgiving. It's remembering that. If each time I am hurt or offended by others, I do not forgive from the, from the heart, why should God forgive me? Number two, notice from this verse, refusing to forgive another person clearly demonstrates that one does not understand the one-time and continuous forgiveness of God. You don't get it. I don't get it if I don't forgive from the heart. Number three, 
If a Christian refuses to forgive, his fellowship with God will be blocked. You know the way you can block someone on social media or on the smartphones? You're blocked. Fellowship with God is blocked. How do we unblock it? When we forgive. So Jesus said also even in chapter 14, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 of Matthew. Number four, from verse 35, notice that heaven is a place where we all enter by God's mercy and where we enter by God's grace and nothing else. Heaven is a place for the compassionately forgiven the impossible. It is therefore unsuited, unsuitable, it is therefore unavailable, it is therefore unfit for the person who cannot show mercy. It's a place of mercy. That's the only way we get to heaven and we enter heaven. So lastly, to my question, how do I know, how do you know that you have forgiven someone and not intellectually, but from your heart? Let me present to you 10 ways you can know. Number one, when you are prepared to help the person if they ever need the help. That's suggestion number one, to know how you have forgiven someone. When you are prepared to help the person if they ever need help from you, in spite of how much they hurt you. Number two, when what happened is more of a reference than a relieving. When you remember what the person did to you, it's a reference. Because we don't forget. It's not a relieving. Relieving brings back all the memories of pain and hurt and anger and bitterness and so on and so forth. But at some point it can move from that to a reference. Number three. When you do not want them to always feel guilty for their sin. When people are hurt, you want the other person to always remember what they did to you. When you do not want them to always feel guilty for their sin, is a way you can know you have forgiven someone from the heart. Number four. When not remaining bitter and reminding the person what they did to you. At every stage is... You... Every time you see them, you are reminding them what they did. The root of bitterness is growing up in your heart to defile. Number five, how do I know I've forgiven? When what the person did to you is not the first thing that comes to mind when you see them. When someone has really, really offended or hurt you when you see them, that's the first thing you remember when it is fresh. But when you have forgiven, maybe it's the second thing. Number six, when you do not have a grudge or grudges, but you speak kind words to them and you genuinely wish them good. You speak kind to them. So their anger has subsided and the bitterness and the pain and so on. And you do not harbor the grudge anymore, any longer. Number seven, when you genuinely wish them well, knowing that God cares for them. God loves them just like God loves you. And you wish them well. You really do. Genuinely from your heart, you wish them well. You think these things are easy? If you've been hurt or offended, you know how hard this is. Number eight. When you no longer want to see the person failing but succeeding. You want to see them succeed and prosper and do well in life. Number nine, when you do not want to publicly shame the person. That's another way you can know that you have forgiven someone from the heart. When you do not want to publicly shame them. And lastly, number ten, when you are not seeking revenge or retaliation. They're no longer seeking revenge or retaliation. Maybe you're even seeking reconciliation. Maybe. That is the person who hurt you, offended you, sinned against you, and so on. So, 
if the person saw their offense, if the person accepted their offense, if the person is even making amends, listen, put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, what if it was me who had hurt or offended or sinned against someone so greatly, that person? How would I want them to treat me? Put yourself in their shoes because it could be you the following day. Maybe it was even you some time back. What can help you heal faster? God, the Holy Spirit. He reaches to the depths of our heart which no one can ever reach. You can talk to people and that is, a, that is good. You can read books, please do. You can listen to good podcasts or someone, go ahead. But the person who can truly heal you is the Holy Spirit. No one can reach the depths of our hearts which the Holy Spirit reaches. What if the person does not accept the sin? They don't accept that they hurt you or offended you. They keep seeking and knocking. Keep asking at the door of God for peace. Also pray for them. You cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. It's not possible. It, just, it can't work. You can't present them, that person before God in prayer and dislike them. So pray for them. No wonder Jesus said, the Bible says, pray for those who despitefully use you. What should you do when you are tempted not to forgive? Remember how much God forgave you. How should you respond when the pain is still there? When the pain is still there, take it to the Lord in prayer. Talk to a trusted, mature Christian friend. Let them just listen. Let them listen to you and walk with you. But pray to the Lord and ask him for healing and peace. I am not downplaying the weight of forgiveness. It's a difficult issue. Something we sing about a lot, we read about a lot, we talk about a lot. That's why I started by saying how many have been hurt or offended by someone in a serious way. You know how it feels. So Jesus gives us steps saying this is what you are to do. This is how you are to approach this issue. Start privately, take a few more people with you, if the person is still insistent and stubborn and impenitent and so on, take the issue to the church. All of this time, what you want is reconciliation, restoration, resolution, repentance. You want to heal. So after he tells his disciples this, now he moves on to Jerusalem, which is what we shall start on next week but one when we start those famous chapters in John, from John chapter 7 to John chapter 10. We shall stay there for about two and a half months, up to some time in September. Next Sunday we shall hear from someone I've invited to come and preach, and then we shall continue with our study of the life of Christ and follow Jesus with his disciples as he moves from Capernaum, where he has just spoken about forgiveness and humility which we saw last Sunday, and then he will, he will go to the feast that is awaiting him. May the Lord help us that we may forgive, that the Lord would heal us, and that the Lord would help us. Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us an unpayable debt, an impossible debt of sin. Thank you that you are moved with compassion and you had pity on us when we pleaded with you to forgive us. There is nothing we could have done. We always want to do things, to do things, to cleanse our sin, to attain forgiveness. But there is nothing we could have done. Everything was done by Jesus on the cross. Everything. All you extend to us is your pity, is your compassion, is your mercy. 
And in the same breath, along the same lines, you ask us to extend the same to those who hurt us, or offend us, or injure us, or sin against us, whether as a church, so that the sin has been made public and we have to deal with it and it's a difficult matter, or whether it is one-on-one -on -one in a brother, sister in Christ kind of relationship, a friend to a friend, a husband to a wife, a business partner to a business partner, and so on. You ask us to extend forgiveness to these people. Help those who are struggling. And they are saying, it has really been hard to forgive this person because they really hurt me. They messed up my past, my childhood, they messed up my finances, my reserves, my, my pension, my retirement plan. These things that were very important to my life, they invaded my life and they hurt me deeply. I loved them and I attached myself to them and I cared about them but they hurt me and I don't know what to do about this Jesus, Holy Spirit. Please help that person. Maybe even connect them to a, a friend, a Christian friend, mature, who can just listen and walk with them. The value of a friend can never be underestimated. It can never be overemphasized. We need friends in our life who are Christian friends who can walk with us and help us. Father, send such a person their way. Help us not to be like the ungrateful servants who forgot what they were forgiven. Oh, Jesus, we are so weak in these things. Help us and make us strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission. Thank you.